Welcome to Continued, part of the teaching ministry here at Third Baptist Church. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here, and our aim in this time is to dig deeper from the sermon on Sunday morning, digging deeper into the text, uh, into exegetical issues, historical issues, contextual issues, whatever issues come up that we feel ought to be chased down a little bit further. My name is Adam. I'm also one of the pastors, and Keith and I are going to be having this conversation. So, welcome to Continued. Why did God put patterns in place? The life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, even Solomon. So many parallels. Some things are, are partially fulfilled in these Old Testament saints, but didn't Jesus fulfills them to its its maximum degree. Keith, you were preaching about the ascension and uh, and you were you're making a lot of really great connections to the Old Testament. You you talked about how the ascension confirmed Jesus's exaltation and also it confirms his second coming in in our text in Acts. You started out the sermon really making a connection to Elijah and and him being one of the men in the Old Testament that didn't die and, and was taken up into heaven also. So what kind of connections do you make to Jesus and Elijah? Is this a, a foreshadowing? Is this a uh, something that we can learn about Jesus' ascension by looking at what happened to Elijah? I think foreshadowing is a good word. Um, when you look back at the Old, Test- Old Testament and uh, you look at the characters, you look at, you look at the story, they look at the individual stories, with a Christ lens, you're going to find Jesus there. You're going to find him everywhere. Uh, let's just let's talk about Elijah. That wasn't the only instance where we find parallels. We find, we find a lot of parallels um, in, in, in Jesus and Elijah's life. Elijah's called the man of God, right? Um, um, Jesus is the Son of God. So uh, two representatives, one proclaiming the Word of God. Who is it going to be? It's going to be Elijah. It's going to be Jesus, the Son of God. Um, both Jesus and Elijah raise a widow's son from the dead. Um, we, we find both of those stories, they mirror each other, and, and, and it can be deduced that it was in the same region, actually having the same region. Um, and then we find, um, you know, everything that we talked about on Sunday morning of the ascension, but not just the ascension, the passing of the baton and the, and, and the, and, and the spirit, not, not that Elijah gave his spirit to Elisha, but there is, Elisha asks for a, a double portion of your spirit and the sons of the prophets, they agree that when, you know, when Elisha, Elijah was raised to heaven, that a portion of Elijah's spirit was on Elisha. So, uh, so we certainly see parallels there, and we could talk for hours, Adam, about uh, about Old Testament really characters and their and their parallels um, to the life, the ministry, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in in the very end of Jesus's earthly ministry, after his resurrection, he's on the Emmaus road and he's walking with the two guys, and he he uses the Old Testament to point to himself. He says. All the law and the prophets are are talking about me, mm-hmm. and so is this an appropriate lens to look at the Old Testament with? Yes, I think so. I, I, yeah. A Christ-centered lens, exactly. Um, obviously, Jesus had a lens of himself. You know, looking back uh, at the Old Testament, and he's teaching his whole ministry, and then when he's when he dies, 
when he's resurrected and he's, you know, he's teaching, he, um, he, he's telling his disciples, listen, I told you this was going to happen. You knew this was going to happen. I told you. And it all had to happen now, remember, yeah. because of the law and the prophets. They, they yeah. proph- it prophesied that the Messiah would suffer. Um, and so, you know, when we, when we look back at the Old Testament, not only are there specific prophecies, but surely Jesus was talking about the men of the Old Testament. Now, the question arises, why does God do that? Now, Elijah is not the only one uh, that's this way, as we, as we talked about. Um, I mentioned Joseph this morning. I didn't go into any detail. Um, so how do we see Jesus coming through in the life of Joseph? Yeah, in, in the life and, of... And you're talking in you know the end of Genesis, Joseph, who is sold into slavery by his brothers, so goes to Egypt. This is the Joseph we're referring to. Yes, yes. The Joseph, Jacob's son, Joseph, exactly. one, of the, one of the 12 fathers of, 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 the, of the tribes of Israel. The parallels between Jesus and Joseph are remarkable. You have a, you have a man that has special love from his father, mm-hmm. um, specific, different, uh, unique love from the father, but his own people, the rest of his brothers, the, the 11 other brothers, um, supremely jealous because of that and because of his special treatment. So what do his own kinsmen do? They rip off his robe. And they, um, and they, and they really, they, they beat him to a pulp, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then they throw him in a pit, right? So you have the lowest of the lows. Reuben steps in and says, you know, the firstborn says, let's not kill him. Yeah. You know, at least he had enough, you know, foresight and, and enough, you know, um, moral audacity to say, I don't think we should kill our younger brother here. That would kill our father if we did that. Yeah. Wouldn't it, wasn't it Judah that was had the the moral high ground and said, hey, at least we can make some money off of them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So you've got you've got several things going on there. Um, so his own kinsmen betray him and sell him into slavery. So he so he goes off and but he's still he's still um, obedient to God. He's he still is living a life that that gives God glory. And then what happens? There's a lot of things we could talk about in the life of Joseph that parallels the the, the life of Jesus. But ultimately, what happens? And we and this is this is this is evident, or, or this is um, pertinent to the sermon this morning. Joseph is humiliated, the lowest of lows, in, thrown into a pit and sold into slavery into Egypt. Um, unthinkable for for a Jewish man, but he's but he's exalted to the right hand of the ruler of the world, Pharaoh. Also. What happens right before his exaltation to Pharaoh's right hand is he's in jail again yeah. for Potiphar's wife. Yeah, yeah, and that's so, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fleeing, right? he, running. At every step of Joseph's story, he's he's a hundred percent dependent on God's protection and provision, and and opening up that next door. Yeah. So we see Joseph, like Jesus, exalted to the right hand of the Father. Joseph exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, who who is the authority. Pharaoh, you know, delegated all of his authority to him. He's, he rules the world. Joseph does, and what does he do? Does he inflict vengeance on his people? Does he um, does he does he say, "You remember what you did to me? Now I'm doing this to you." He doesn't do that. He offers forgiveness to his people who betrayed him he and deserve is, nothing but judgment and wrath exactly. from him. Joseph becomes the salvation. For his brothers. He becomes the... That's, that's exactly right, Adam. That's a good way to put it. He becomes the, the one whom they betrayed becomes their salvation. And, and so, you know, Joseph is early. Um, Elijah comes later. But all throughout, you have men and you have stories. The storyline, men and individual stories that are patterns 
um, of Christ. Um, any others that, that come to your mind that we could just talk about briefly? Adam, what would yeah, you say? Yeah, yeah, of course. This idea that I think the the church reads the Old Testament stories and they fail to read Jesus in these stories is is widespread. Um, we we need to teach our children how to read Old Testament stories. We need to redefine a lot of these narratives in the Old Testament in a Christocentric way. Um, maybe the most famous one that I think of is David and Goliath. You know that that's a great story. You know you'll you'll hear that taught from children to adults, and and unfortunately a lot of times it's taught in a way to say, you know, stand up to your giants, fight your giants, even, you know, have God on your side as you face your giants, something like that. But if we switch the lens and you start to read that story in a Christ-centered way, you'll find that we're not David. We're not the one facing the giant at all. Um, if, if we have to interject ourselves in the, in the story, we would be the, the scared Israelites who are, are too afraid to, to meet the enemy on the battlefield. We're shaking in our armor and can't do anything. And then the unexpected hero comes forward, and that's Jesus. It's David in the Old Testament. David comes forward, and, and he doesn't fight with traditional weapons. He doesn't use Saul's armor. He doesn't use the weapons of war of that time. He uses a sling and, and five stones. Um, and, and if you read the story... Uh, you know, I, I read this Bible story to my kids sometimes at uh, at night, and they love it because David cuts off Goliath's head. My boys are like, "Oh my gosh!" You know, it's so graphic. And uh, and so what what's happening there? David kills Goliath with his own weapon, the same way Jesus defeats sin with its own weapon. Death is the the weapon of sin, and Jesus defeats sin with his own death. Yeah. Um, there's yeah, so good. many great parallels. Yeah. And, and if we teach the story as pointing to Jesus as our hero, I think you get the true meaning of that story. The true meaning and how much richer is that for our souls oh my goodness. to hear that we, because we, ha- we need a savior yes. and we know that. We know we're not David. Uh, deep mm-hmm. down, I know I'm not. Mm-hmm. I know I'm scared. I need a savior. So how much richer is that for us when we hear that, oh, oh, yes, behold the glory and the power of Jesus, the greater David? Yep, that I am not the one that is going to fight my own battles. I get to trust in Jesus, and he is going to, uh, to take on the enemy that I could never defeat on my own. And yet, you know, so many times that story is... is misinterpreted to say, you know, face your Goliath and, yeah. you know, all that. Yeah. But I, I think the real meaning is is to point us to Jesus. Yeah. You know, you mentioned David. Um, David David is, um, all throughout his life, uh, is pictured as a Messiah-like figure. You know, he, he is a, you mentioned a foreshadowing. He's a, he's a, he is a bright foreshadowing. I don't know if that's a contradiction um, of the Messiah coming. You mentioned David and Goliath. That's probably one of the more famous stories. But here's one that's not as famous um, of David being a Christ-like figure, one that would foreshadow the work of Christ. 2 Samuel chapter 9, the story of David and Mephibosheth. Um, Say Mephibosheth five times. (laughs) Um, Now, Mephibosheth is one of Saul's sons. And so what, what do we know? Well, David has taken the throne from Saul. 
And by the end of Saul's life, they were enemies. David was, tr- I mean, Saul was trying his best to kill him because he knew he was God's man. He knew he was going to take his throne. Now, in the old days, what would happen when a, when, when a man takes a former man's throne? What would he then do? He would do one thing. He would kill all of his sons so that none of them could rise up and say, wait a minute, that's my throne. I have the ancestral rights to that throne and ra- you know, raise up this rebellion and, you, and you, have a, you have a battle that may turn into a war. But David didn't do that. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, he asked the question, is there any of Saul's sons left? And they say, yeah, the crippled one. You know, the one, you read the story, sad story, dropped when he was a child. Um, his mother, fleeing for her life, dropped him and he was crippled the rest of his life. He said, yeah, yeah. They said, yeah, Mephibosheth is, is still here. He said, bring, bring him to me. And, you know, his, the people around him are thinking, Everybody's okay, this expecting, is it. David's, David's going to yeah, end his life so he doesn't be a, rise up. A bad ending, they well, think. Yeah, what does he do? He invites him to eat at his table. Not only eat at his table for a night, for an evening, but for the rest of his life. What, is, what does that show us? That, that God, through Christ, has invited us, his enemies, crippled you know, pathetic, unable to do anything on our own, undeserving, unworthy to eat at the king's table. He's invited us to come eat at the king's table. That's amazing. worthy of his wrath, he invites us to come and sit with him, not just for an evening, but for all of eternity. And stories like that all over the Old Testament. All the Old Testament is pointing forward to a, a future hero that is going to fulfill everything and more. That, that these Old Testament examples and, and pictures only partially can do. Yeah. Um, even in, you know, just the sacrificial system, the, the, everything going on in the Old Testament was point, pointing forward. Yeah. And now we have this opportunity to look backward yeah. on this event, on Jesus. This question may arise, why does God do that? Why did God put patterns, and I think that's a good word we could use, patterns in place? The life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. I mean, just incredible parallels. Then you have, then you have David and even Solomon, so many parallels. Why does he do that? I think we could bring in the, you know, the academic terms, typology, census plenor, which there's disagreement about, you know, some hold the census, which means fuller sense in Latin. You know, um, some things are, are partially fulfilled in these Old Testament saints, but then Jesus f- fulfills them to its, its maximum degree. Um, typology means that these, these men serve as types of the greater. You know, the, Jesus is the greater David. He's the greater Solomon. Uh, he's the greater Elijah. Why does he do that? I think, you know, without academic disagreement, I think we can, we can simply say he's preparing his people for the one to come, right? And, and I think this also fits with the way our brains work and the way God has hardwired us as humans. We instinctively look for patterns. We, yeah. we always are trying to make sense of what's going on, looking for patterns Within life, within everything that we do, and um, and so to think that God would would weave this grand narrative of the redemptive history yeah. in all of time, it just makes sense. Yeah, and here's what I would encourage our people: 
um, because this is it's when you when you see these things in the scriptures, like I said, it, it's just it's so rich and it's so edifying and it's so rewarding to see these things. Here's what how I'd encourage our people: first of all, to be reading the Old Testament, um, and also which is hard. Which is I, hard. I admit, Old Testament is hard to read. Yeah. New Testament is much more Western mindset. Almost Paul talks in a logical way that we connect with, but Old Testament is so foreign. Yeah. It's Middle Eastern. It's it's ancient. And so you, I, I yeah, admit it's hard. It's hard. This, this makes it easier when you're, when you're seeing these things, when you're seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Here's, here's what I would say. Um, have a Bible. You, may, you probably already have a Bible that has cross-references. When you're reading through the, any of the epistles, look at those cross-references. When Jesus says something, the CSB gives us the advantage of putting them in bold. Anytime you see something bold, anytime you see um, a footnote next to it and, it and it references an Old Testament passage, then go to that passage. Use the tools we have today that, that, that scholarship has given to us. Go to that passage and find out why, just in your own, in your own heart, why would Paul have quoted that? Why would Jesus have said, that, said it this way? Um, many times study Bibles will say, just like David did this, so Jesus did this. Just like Solomon did this, so is Jesus doing this. And when you start doing that, you see just the the dependence that these biblical writers had on the Old Testament. The New Testament writers had on the Old Testament. They they knew their Old Testament, and, and it influenced everything that they yeah. were doing. That's one of the things that um, I'm, I'm hoping to convey on Sunday mornings is— when Jesus says these things, ringing in the ears of the disciples, surely is this passage. Let's go look at it. Um, because Jesus is saying things that they're hearing and they know. They know what he's talking about. We don't have that advantage, you know, because we didn't grow up memorizing the Old Testament. Um, we grew up, you know, most of us in a Christian context, we're learning the Bible, but we just, we just didn't know it, and we don't know it to the extent that they do, not to mention that, you know, they're in a context that we're not, so they're listening for things, they're hearing things, and they, so that's, that's why I think it's important, I, I think it's a lot of fun uh, for us to say, okay, when, when Jesus said this, his disciples surely were thinking this. Let's go there. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, our, your text for your sermon was 9 through 12, and it's all about the ascension. You, you, we've mentioned already your connection to Elijah and how he was caught up in what the Old Testament called a fiery chariot. You brought in the idea of the cloud, which I thought was really good, representing the presence of God. Yeah. Um, and, and walked that through a lot of Old Testament passages as well as New Testament passages. That was, that was excellent. But then at the ascension, the disciples are, are standing there in awe. They are awestruck. They are blown away by what they have just seen, Jesus leaving in a cloud. And in the sermon, you, you said there were some angels standing there, and they were so focused upward that they didn't even notice these yeah. angels. I thought that was, that was a great point that— you know, normally in the Bible, when angels show up, people fall in their faces. Oh, yeah. But the disciples, they were so focused on Jesus, yeah. they missed the angels. Yeah. It had to be an enormously <laughs> glorious event. Yes, right? yes. Yeah. And, and so these angels kind of had catch their attention. Hey, guys, hey, why are you staring up in the sky? Yeah. And so what is the connection that these angels point the disciples to something in the future, not something yeah. in the past? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you know, we talked about last week how, you know, the 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 prophets are seeing these mountains, right? And and what we what we see is that there are two comings of the Christ. The first time he comes, he will deal with sin and death and and inaugurate the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom in the church age. Um, of where he's he's gathering his children together um, by the proclamation and the advancement of the of the Holy Spirit who conquers hearts, but he says, well, the Old Testament prophesies, and we see it clearly that Jesus is clear that he will come back. I will not leave you as orphans, he says. And then in Acts chapter one, he ascends, and the angels reaffirm that as as, as two witnesses. You know, you, 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 echoes of the Old Testament once again, two witnesses standing by them. In, in wide apparel, you know, um, saying, just as he went up, he will come back. But in other words, it's not imminent. So, you know, get to work. Don't you remember he, he, he told you, you know, so get to work. And, and then at last week we talked about Jesus said, it's not for you to worry about the times and the seasons. But one thing we know for sure, and especially as we see unfolded in the epistles, is that Jesus will come back. He will Come back, and we talked about three things um, that that are different about his his return than when he went up. He went up in a private meeting. He'll come back very publicly. Every eye will see him. He went up in a spiritual, invisible reign. He will come back in a visible, universal, earthly reign. And he went up as savior and judge, but he comes back to save and to judge. And we went to Zechariah chapter fourteen. Zechariah is prophesying the day of the Lord when he comes and stands and reigns. And then this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul um, talks about the actual um, work of Christ when he comes back, what will happen. It says that for those of us who are afflicted, God's going to repay those who afflicted us. And this will happen at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel. They'll pay the penalty, but verse 10, on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all who have believed. This is incredible language from Paul. When he comes back, we will, what? We will marvel at him. And 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 every ounce of, of pain, of confusion, of discouragement, um, of failure, when we see him face to face, it will all be worth it, and we will marvel at him when he comes back. Now, we talked last week about the different views of the millennium. Mm-hmm. The millennium, Revelation 20, when, when he comes and reigns, is that millennium now? Is it after he comes back? And um, those are healthy conversations. But one thing we know is that he is coming back physically to either make things new at once or, con- or, or sort of ramp up. You know, he's, he's bringing the kingdom to earth. That's what he's doing right now. And he comes back to either ramp it up high speed or he brings it, you know, at one time. Um, and there's different views on that. Yeah. The one thing that keeps us orthodox, that, that makes sure we are within the bounds of biblical Christianity, is this belief in the return of Jesus. The angels say in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. That is a, a hope, a comfort when we're going through difficult times, when life is hard, when, when our circumstances around us 
are just pressing in, we know there is a future hope that is secure. He will come again. Is there any other things that you can think of that this this imminent return of Jesus, this promised hope of Jesus' second return, interact intersect with real life, with daily life? So first of all, it, it encourages us um, that we have hope. Um, when, when things are bleak on this earth, we have hope that our bodies will be raised and we will live with Jesus for all of eternity uh, in perfect communion with him. Second, it reminds us to go and to tell um, because what does Paul say in 2 Thessalonians 1? That he, he, for those who have believed in him, they will marvel at him. We will marvel at him. But for those who have rejected him will experience his wrath and they will experience it face to face. We, we, want, we want to bring people with us. We, we want, you know, flee from the wrath to come. Hide in the righteousness of Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe in him. Another area that I think the second coming of Jesus intersects with real life is, is our sense, this inward desire for justice. And, and we, deep down, we know that things aren't right. And there's a lot of things that happen in, in real life, in our, our experience, that we can't make right. That, you know, there is pain, there is suffering, there is evil in this world, and it is not being answered at the moment. But the second coming of Jesus promises us that one day all wrongs will be made right, right. and and justice is coming for uh, for all those injustices that we see today. When he comes, he will make everything right, and we will agree with him, right? So, you know, we look at it, we think, you know, how is he going to deal with this? What about this? We don't know the answer to this. Is he coming then or then? What about the rapture? Where does that fall? Endless questions, endless questions that the Bible isn't specific about. That's on purpose. We're, We're to trust God, trust his word. We know the essentials. But here's one thing we know is that God, through Christ, will get everything right. And we will be in full agreement with the king of the universe when he does that.